Hello, America. I'm back. This is Paul Graves, the managing editor for Debtwire Municipals, joining you today from New York City with some talented members of the team. We have Kathy O'Donnell from Harrisburg. Kathy, what are you going to be talking about today? Well, Paul, I'm going to be talking about the Pennsylvania budget. And from the Windy City, we have Caitlin Devitt. Caitlin, what's on your menu for today? Hi, Paul. I'm going to be talking about the sweeping opioid lawsuits and the latest efforts in Kentucky to address its its big pension problem. All right. And just one housekeeping note that we're recording on the morning of Thursday, June 27th. But we also have one other guest, a friend of the program, a former member of the DW Muni's team, Seth Brumby. (laughs) (laughs) Seth. Seth used to work with us, and then he quit and decided to go do something else. Wait, uh, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. I, I mean, but you quit. don't work with us anymore, right? I didn't quit. I just, I... Oh, that's was... me embellishing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, Seth didn't quit. He took another opportunity within the company. Seth, why don't you tell us more about that opportunity, and then we'll get into why you're here. Sure. I'm working with a group called Credit Flux. It's a sister publication to the DebtWire suite of products. We focus on collateralized loan obligations, credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, direct lending, and other forms of private credit. All right. So as I said, Seth quit to go work with them. <laughs> but moving beyond that, I'm not bitter or anything, so I don't want people to think that. This uh, is oh. the first time I've been back on the Muni, down, Muni lowdown since I left, and I had to insist on it. And you left last August. See, you even said it. You left last August. August of 2018, we're all kidding aside. It sounds different when you say it. Right, right, right. So, um, and we'll probably bring Caitlin in on this as well, but there were some interesting developments over the last week that involved munis, but specifically CLOs, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that, and we can have a little dialogue on it. Sure. So, one of the things, I was, I was out in California last week, we had a conference in Los Angeles kind of catering to the investment community of out there, which is really deep. Um, and I suggest we do some more events out there because it was very well received. But was visiting with some subscribers, and one of them had mentioned the growing interest in what are called PACE bonds. Uh, that is an acronym for Property Assessed Clean Energy Bonds. We've been covering them out of our asset-backed securities debt wire product for a couple of years now. But one of the things that interested me about it is that You know, a lot of these have limited obligation special assessment bonds essentially put into a portfolio that throws off cash flow, and then they're securitizing that. In just digging around and looking at the pricing for these bonds, I noticed that, A, they priced much tighter than a corporate CLO, which is essentially the same kind of structure, except instead of special assessment limited obligation bonds, you have corporate loans. And I would think that corporate loans would be tighter Um, than a limited obligation special assessment bond. But no, um, it's actually wider than that. And I thought that was interesting because the special assessment bonds are not rated. Um, They're also highly exposed to residential real estate, too. So um, anyhow, that that piqued my interest. And in talking with other Muni colleagues uh, like Caitlin and just sort of fishing around, we, we learned that some of the parties involved in a lot of the arranging of this debt let me get out some of the agencies for you. One is the California Municipal Finance Authority, and the other one is the California Statewide Communities Development Authority. I found the uh, CS, 
CDA's involvement kind of interesting because it's the same crew of guys who I believe set up the Wisconsin Public Financing Authority. And we know that they are responsible for a lot of the unrated debt coming out of the CCRC industry, as well as uh, I think their biggest deal was the American Dream Mall, which I see every day on the way to work. And it's coming along very nicely, by the way. And they're building an Angry Birds mini golf course over there as well. That sounds dangerous to me. What do you like throw golf balls at flying birds and imagine? <laughs> it's, well, it's one of two golf courses, but I don't want to digress. But yeah, that's an interesting. That's going to be interesting to see how that all kind of plays out. That American Dream project. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we're going to start looking into just um, you know a lot of CLO investors really require a lot of portfolio disclosure. Um, uh, a group that I work with on Credit Flux also does a data project called CLOI. And CLOI collects portfolio data on CLO portfolios, and they go through things like performance of the companies, any defaults that might be there, any changes in markings. But you don't quite have that same kind of transparency uh, with this type of security. So uh, hopefully we'll learn some more and maybe be back on the lowdown to talk about it. So, Kaylin, I know in the past you've done some work on these PACE bonds. Can you tell us a little bit more about that specifically? Well, PACE bonds are kind of interesting. They've been around for a while, and um, but they've had sort of an uneven start. You know, first of all, it's state by state, and also they're broken into commercial and residential, and the residential kind of niche was sort of hindered for a while. Um, by different federal restrictions, whereas the commercial one is really taken off. So, um, yeah, they're basically, like Seth said, they're special assessment backed. California, they're, you know, they puts out the most volume of um, these PACE bonds by far. And yesterday I talked to um, the head of the agency that is the biggest um, issuer of the residential PACE bonds, which is the Western Riverside Coalition of Governments. It's a joint power authority. And it's interesting. He said um, that the state in California has actually seen this major drop-off. They've seen a 70% drop from um, 17 to 18 in uh, fiscal 17 to fiscal 18 in volume because of various things, including legislation that has really made it more um, that's really kind of clamp down on the lending standards a little bit. You know, these bonds are, um, they don't go with the person, they go with the property. So the, the, the homeowner's credit is, um, was, until recently with new legislation, largely irrelevant. It was just the value of the property, so you could get it. So you could imagine people might have been taking on more debt. Um, associated with their house than they were um, than they were able to pay off. So California General Assembly kind of clamped down on that, and there's various other, there's more competition and there's other things at play, but they've seen a big drop-off in the residential pace um, bond loan program, so that's something that I'm going to be writing about this week. Yeah, just a just little bit of background on the actual kind of what these bonds are used for. So there will be a special assessment on a property that has gotten a, a form of financing to essentially reduce the carbon footprint of that building, which is why for commercial real estate, it was a, a pretty hot asset class. Um, residential real estate also, we're trying to take advantage of that too. So, you know, the owner of that property um, would pay a special assessment to the local government entity, and then like that local government entity would then pay take that revenue and then pay it to the limited obligation bonds. And Caitlin, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that payment senior to the mortgage or is there any kind of security 
that the uh, senior to yeah, it's interest, it's senior to everything, including the mortgage. So that's a lien, and that lien goes along with the property. So if it's sold, any new owner is going to come in and, and either have to pay that off or deal with that senior lien. Yeah, and, and just as a reminder, and, it, and we're not saying that things are going to go awful the way of the, the dirt bonds that we saw in Florida, but if you look at what happens to special assessments um, when things do go bad, you, you realize just how much control that assessment can have over the disposition of a property should it go into default or your market really collapse. Um, we saw lots of foreclosures in Florida on raw land as well as homes, and a lot of that just had to do with the local taxing authority being able to come in there and saying, you know what, you owe me taxes, and this is now mine. Um, and it didn't really matter what kind of security might have been on that asset. So um, it's something definitely to be careful of. Not everything breaks, but we should have a good sense of what happens when they do. So two other things. One, just a point of clarification, Caitlin, you mentioned the Western Riverside Coalition, I think you meant Western Riverside Council of Governments, and Seth, how many of these transactions have we seen? Is this like the second one? Yeah, so as Caitlin pointed out, I I guess volume has really dropped off. This is the second this year. Uh, Last year, there's only maybe a half a dozen, um, at least coming out of uh, California, but but yeah, the, the... the transaction sizes, the actual size of securitization, I think, was $165 million for the most recent deal. Um, the one earlier this year wasn't that much bigger. Um, so you don't see these very often. So that makes them interesting. That's on the securitization side that you don't see often. But the Correct. issuance of PACE bonds, you see frequently, in fact, like um, the Western Riverside um, Council, they go to market weekly. They go to market weekly with these things. Wow. So that so you do see a lot of that, but what Seth what Seth is picking up on the securitization that's more rare. All right, Seth. We'll always know that you're always a friend of the program. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate that. No, feel free to come back to update us on this or anything else going on. Okay. All right. So, Katie, let's switch gears. There's another big lawsuit going on concerning opioids. And well, first, can you give us some background and then maybe update us on where things stand now? Sure. Well, there's a, there, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are facing really a barrage of lawsuits from all directions on, um, related to the opioid crisis. And the one that I'm going to talk about is um, a lawsuit brought by about 1,900 local governments. It's in federal court in Ohio and in Cleveland, and the federal judge there, um, Dan Polster, he, um, he, he kind of sees this, and many others see this lawsuit as sort of a bellwether for, and possibly a template for a national settlement that would include the states, and then would include, you know, it, it, there's many others, there's hospitals, there's tribes. So, um, so what happened recently in this federal um, Ohio case that people are watching kind of closely to see how the whole thing plays out because it's so messy, um, is the attorneys for the local governments um, pitched a proposal that they want to include every single municipality in the U.S. Um, in, a, in any potential settlement. So that's almost 25,000 local governments, and they would be basically, they would create a new class action negotiating class 
um, a government would actually have to opt out not to be part of that. And if not, if they did nothing, they would automatically be part of it. They even created a large kind of interactive map that shows each local municipality and how much it might um, get, you know, what slice of a little of a pie it might get from any settlement. So they proposed that in mid-June. Um, there was a hearing on it last week, and um, and it was interesting. Sort of the issue was kind of punted a little bit, because partly because the states stepped in. They're not part of this lawsuit. And they stepped in, and they, you know, they really said that that could be problematic for their own lawsuits. All 40, there's 48 states and um, that have that have their own lawsuit situation going with the pharmaceutical companies. So they said that having all these local governments might really screw up their kind of efforts for a national settlement. And so the attorneys for the locals agreed to, or they asked the judge, and the judge agreed for, for them to take a couple more weeks, go back to the drawing board, try to repurpose this plan so that they can make um, kind of more of the parties happy. And then Polster set a hearing for August 6th to pick this back up. So, Seth, it's fortuitous that you would be here today because when you were with Muni's, you used to cover tobacco bonds a little bit. And I know this potential settlement is supposed to be patterned after that. But what were those tobacco bonds, like the proceeds were supposed to be used for tobacco prevention and were they actually and used for <clears throat> prevention yeah. and health care? No, no. I think we all saw a lot of them were, were used to plug one-time budget, uh, budget gaps. Um, the, the thing that I found especially interesting about tobacco is that the state essentially sold its interest in what was a, a depreciating asset, i.e. the reward from their class action, their class actions against the tobacco companies. And those sale agreements, I think, were tested every now and then. I think we saw um, some people try to make some kind of movement to break them in Puerto Rico, but as we saw with the Children's Trust down there, that it's ended up being a pretty resilient structure. So um, maybe this ends up being a good thing for the states. But yeah, in terms of fiscal policy, it was it was smart that they decided to maybe bond out the revenue, knowing that it might decline. But I don't know if that kind of modeling would be involved in this. I mean, Caitlin, any idea about whether or not over time, whether or not payments to the states would fall? I, I assume that it would. Yeah, I think that it's too early. I mean, people have talked about the tobacco securitizations for sure, sort of a model, but I think it's too early to, um, or at least I haven't talked to people who have really started to talk about the details of what that might look like. The, the court process is so messy right now, and there's so, many, there's so many parties involved, and there might be bankruptcies, and so I just think that, um, that it seems like the securitization details are sort of still far down the road. Yeah, and the strange thing, too, this this isn't getting increasingly morbid, but the way that you valued your payments to the states was based upon the amount of cigarettes removed, which means the participating manufacturers would manufacture a certain amount of cigarettes, sell them in the United States, and that's what the payments to the states was based on. How do you value states to, payments to a state based upon an opioid settlement? Um, less prescriptions? I, I, I don't know how that works. Um, that'd be interesting to find out how they make those valuations. And Caitlin, the other thing I was wondering about was, it seems like you have an interesting dynamic here with the local governments trying to achieve some sort of settlement, and then at the simultaneously you have state governments trying to achieve a settlement, and it seems like there's a tension there because, like with the tobacco settlement, the local governments never so. And when I say local governments, I mean whatever 
tax, whatever residents that were supposed to see the benefit of tobacco prevention and these health programs, it never happened. And so, but on the other hand, it seems like it's double jeopardy for the companies in the sense of you have local governments and state. So if tobacco, if, if opioid companies make a settlement with the states, are they then going to have to make a, another settlement with the localities? And it's, you know, all these localities are in one of these states. So it just, I'm just kind of wondering how this is going to work out in terms of the distribution of revenue. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the big questions, and that's why, you know, people are sort of talking about some sort of giant settlement, because um, from the pharmaceutical company's point of view, they're not going to want to, you know, settle with the states and then have the locals pop up and be asking for some or vice versa. Um, But then again, going back to the tobaccos, I think there's some grumbling on the local government side of saying, you know, they never got a piece of that cash. They let the states really, the attorney generals, really take the attorneys general really take the lead on it and and then the states benefited from that and the locals never did so they don't want that to happen again so that's why there's this effort to sort of organize them um but yeah i mean i think that's why pollster the judge and others are really pushing for some sort of big settlement so that there's not all these outstanding loose ends yeah i think new york and california were the only two states in the tobacco settlement that had some kind of structure whereby they did share the revenue with their counties and municipalities. I mean, New York City has its own tobacco securitization authority. Uh, Suffolk County, I've seen them issue their own bonds. There, there, there are lots of pooled trusts for the uh, Saratoga counties, like upstate um, California. I, I don't recall which counties themselves. But I want to, I want to say Orange County might have issued um, some tobacco bonds, but. States can decide to do that and get along with their municipalities. Um, so there is a model out there. All right. Well, this is certainly something we'll be keeping a very close eye on. But let's take things over to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Seems like we have some budget issues going on over there, Kathy. Well, Paul, it had looked for a while like the uh, fiscal 20 budget process was going to be kind of a sleeper compared with some of the impasses that we've seen in previous years. Uh, But there have certainly been some fireworks lately, particularly surrounding the elimination of something called the General Assistance Program. So on Tuesday, the House approved House Bill 790, which is the general appropriations part of the state budget. And the state Senate is supposed to vote on it actually now, today on Thursday morning. We were supposed to start around 11 a.m. But the... The budget that was approved by the House has no new taxes or fees, and it does not include a minimum wage increase, which is something that Governor Wolf, who's a Democrat, had wanted. Uh, The budget that Wolf introduced in February called for an increase in the minimum wage of um, $12 an hour starting on July 1st of this year. The current minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. And then after that, it would increase to $15 by July 1st, 2025. And during the session on Tuesday, House Speaker Mike Terzai repeatedly shut down debate regarding minimum wage, saying that it was not relevant to the budget discussion. Uh, But the Democrats continue to try and raise it as an issue. Um, For example, uh, Representative Bradford, who is Democratic Appropriations Chair, 
He said it is relevant to the budget discussion because the state has to spend uh, much more money on social services to subsidize those who are trying to make do on minimum wage. Um, and then in um, the, the Senate, uh, there was yesterday quite a bit of fireworks over the eliminating this general assistance program, uh, which would save the Commonwealth, I think, about $54 million in FY20. Um, the vote on eliminating that program, which kind of serves the poorest of the poor and provides about $200 a month to them. Uh, so the program passed um, the the bill to eliminate it passed uh, 26 to 24, but there was a huge battle that erupted um, that saw the Senate President Pro Tempore Scarnati seize the rostrum from Lieutenant Governor uh, John Fetterman. So it was quite the, uh, as Penn Live, which covered it, quite the uh, fracas yesterday. So a little bit more excitement than had looked at the beginning of the process. I wish politics would be boring again. <laughs> I'm going to can- cancel my Netflix subscription if it gets any more exciting. So when does it look like this would be resolved, the budget? In the next week, or could it take longer? I I think, you know, it's, anything is possible, but, um, you know, I'll have to see how today, which is Thursday, proceeds. But, you know, I think it's going to be on time. There's just quite a bit of um, tension between the very, very kind of um, intransigent, some would say, Um, conservative wing of the uh, House Republicans who kind of won't compromise, according to some folks, and the Democrats who I think are feeling uh, like they're not getting anything that they want. So um, I think for now, at least it looks like it will be done on time, but uh, who knows. And just two points of clarification, the Senate pro tem currently is Joe Scarnati, and you mentioned representative, state representative Matt Bradford uh, that were involved in this process. Mm -hmm. So, all right, Mm -hmm. another situation we'll be watching, but let's close it out with an, I guess it's an oldie, but I don't know if it's oldie, but goodie, but it's certainly something that we've mentioned before. Another Commonwealth, the Commonwealth of Kentucky and pensions, which has been a long-running theme on our podcast, been developments there Kaylin, so they have a solution to their pension problems? Well, no solution on the horizon yet, Paul. Um, they've taken the governor, Governor Matt Bevin, who's a Republican, took another stab at, um, at tackling one piece of the pension problem. This week he unveiled a revi- and presented a, a revised bill. Um, and just to illustrate sort of how deep the problems are and politically what a tough nut it is, this just deals with kind of one aspect um, of the the states. It's the it's the non-hazardous main employees state um, pension. So it's Kentucky Employees Retirement System non-hazardous. It's the worst funded in the country. It's 13% funded. Um, so you know, perilously close to PAYGO. And um, and the fix that they're trying for isn't even really a fix. It like I said, it just deals with. These are so-called quasi-governmental um, agencies like public health departments, domestic violence agencies, sexual um, assault agencies, and then it's also a handful of regional universities. And it's just dealing with their pension contributions, which are set to spike July 1 with the new fiscal year. And um, even that is 
uh, Bevin and lawmakers are having a very difficult time even kind of imposing um, some sort of patch to that problem. So when you say that these are non-hazardous employees, what's the distinction there, and are there hazardous employees, and what does all of that mean? It's not, it, police and fire would be the hazardous program. So this is non-hazardous, so it's just kind of the more, the more um, straightforward state employees that are not part of police and fire. And does the bill carry a financial impact to the state's general fund? It does. It carries a big one. It carries an $800 million um, financial impact over 23 years if it's passed. And again, like I said, this is um, th- they're having a difficult time, and not even for that reason. I mean, they're, they're in such a tough political, um, I mean, fiscal position that any fix is going to cost a lot. Um, so in this case, the, the agencies and the universities are going to see their pension contributions spike to 83% of payroll next year, um, which is massive and could put a lot out of business. And so this, this idea to, let, to freeze the contribution rate for another year and then let them opt out. And, um, and they'll opt out either in an installment plan or paying with a lump sum. We're starting to hear some um, speculation that the universities might issue bonds, pension obligation bonds, to finance their lump sum. But that's a separate story. But in any case, somebody's going to have to pick up the rest of that contribution rate um, for the ones that opt out or for the ones that you know that that stay in but can't you know that need sub, uh, subsidies. So that's going to be the state, and that's where that $800 million price tag over the next 23 years. And then there could be more because the ones that opt out that pay on the installment plan over 30 years, they might not be able to make that pay, the, uh, those full payments after 30 years. They, they might still have unfunded liability left over, and the state's going to likely have to pick up that as well. So two connected questions. One, last year Governor Bevin tried to do a reform proposal. Some people say, depending on your perspective, that it wasn't in good faith because it was like part of some other bill. I want to say it was like water and sewer legislation that was some part about, you know, doing pension reform. So was there any lingering effect from that in terms of the governor and the legislature not being able to work in good faith? And then the other part, moving forward, why not just deal with the problem now as opposed to it's like we're going to be in a holding pattern for a year and there's still going to be a difficult problem to solve. So why do this bridge for a year? Well, they need to do the bridge right now because the quasi-agencies are saying that they might go out of business, and, and there have been a few that have gone out of business that are in bankruptcy restructuring, and they want to shrug off their entire unfunded liability and put it on the state. Um, the, you know, the, the Kentucky Employees Retirement System have to pick up that tab. So the state has a vested interest in sort of dealing with that piece of the problem now. This is separate from what you're talking about, where, which was – a large pension overhaul that the legislature passed in the final literally like hours of its regular session um and that was thrown out later by the supreme court because it was on process grounds not on grounds of um that it was a violation of cutting contracts or anything but it was on process grounds that they crammed it in like you say at the bottom of a water sewer bill um and nobody got enough time to you know do three readings and all that so they've been unable to kind of gather their, you know, gather enough political will or support together to try to do some sort of large-scale pension thing after that, which was seen as a major defeat. That's still lingering. Last week, a circuit court judge actually um, 
required or ordered Bevan's administration to unveil uh, economic analysis of the pension reform that they've been trying to keep secret and also um, make legal payments. So that's, you know, so you're still seeing fallout from that. And um, so it's anybody's guess that will probably come up in the next regular session. They're just trying to deal with this one little piece in a special session. Bevan's been pushing back the special session week after week because he can't get enough support for his little, for his bill. Um, so we'll see now they're saying one is going to come in late July or August just to deal with that. And then the idea, theoretically, um, after November elections is everybody will come back next year and try to tackle maybe some of the bigger questions. All right. Certainly another issue we'll be monitoring closely. Well, that's it. Unfortunately, America, next week is 12th of July. So we'll all be barbecuing or something, but we won't be here. So we'll be off for a week, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Talk to you soon. Take care.